Hey, welcome to City on the Hill. My name is James Reinars, and today we're starting a series tackling tough questions about God. From time to time, I hear about some struggles a college student has with God, or a few times a youth group leader has reached out to me about how to handle certain skepticisms a youth in their church is having. Oftentimes, it seems the questioner has not found a great place to voice their concerns, except with peers who are maybe in the same boat as them. So I hope these episodes can open up conversations that friends, mentors, and small groups can continue together. Now, let's dig into a tough question. Was sin part of God's plan? About a month ago, I was on Zoom with the guys' fellowship group. We were watching a sermon and discussing it afterwards, and my friend William mentioned this episode's question in passing. We talked separately about it a bit afterwards, and he felt my thoughts on the Bible would be something he'd like his peers to hear. So, that's what we're doing today. And I'd like to recommend at the outset two chapters from two great authors, which have really helped me see these things in the Bible. They are T. Austin Sparks and C.S. Lewis, and I'll put links to these books that helped me in the description. So to the topic. I like William's question, was sin part of God's plan? It is a little different than the questions people typically ask, which I will touch on briefly. When wrestling with the fact of sin and evil in the face of God's sovereignty, people often ask, why is there sin in the first place? Or if God is good, why is there evil? Or if God is all-powerful, as the Bible says he is, then why did he allow Satan to fall? These questions often result in trains of thought that say, If God is all-powerful, then he must not be good because he allowed pain to happen. Or, if God didn't want evil to exist, then he must not be all-powerful enough to stop it. William's question is worded a little differently, which sets us on a path to find what I think is a better biblical perspective. He asks, was sin part of God's plan? And this thought of the plan is a great place to start. See, the Bible tells us that God created with wisdom and intention. He had an eternal purpose which caused him to create in order to fulfill this purpose. A purpose is a goal, and any good goal needs a well-thought-out plan to get us from A to B. So the Bible, especially in books like Ephesians, states and reveals God's eternal purpose and his plan to accomplish it. To lay down an understanding of God's eternal purpose and why that required a certain kind of creation and plan, I'll try to unpack just two verses from the start of Ephesians. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. I'll read them real quick. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. I want to establish three ideas from these verses. The first is the word spiritual. Second, holy and blameless. And third, this all happens in love. In Christ, God has given his people spiritual blessings. These gifts are spiritual in nature and can be received by man because man was created as a physical and spiritual being. To bless us spiritually is part of the goal. One of these spiritual blessings is that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 
This decision before the foundation of the world tells us about what was in God's heart, his counsel before he created. This is sometimes referred to as eternity past, since it is before time. I know it's eternity, it's sort of a funny term, but this is what was in eternity before he set creation in motion. So before he set creation in motion, he had chosen that he desired to have people who could be before him, like really with him. He desired to extend his inner community, his sphere of relationship, to include beings who could be holy and blameless before him in love. This gives us a window into the nature and desire of the triune God. See, the triune God, being a complex being, experienced an amazing community, a set of relationships and communication between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, which was so special, beautiful, and mutual. The spark of creation was a desire to share this wonder, his own divine communion, with something else that could appreciate and respond to him. God is love, and the three love one another in a full, deep, and exclusive way so powerfully that there came in a heart desire to share this with others. Thus, before the creation of the world, God chose to create the us in this verse, his people, the church, and bride of Christ to fulfill this desire. It's romantic. He is passionate about it and has set all his wisdom, power, and focus on bringing this about. So this relationship is spiritual because God is spiritual and requires another set of spiritual beings. On the sixth day, God created man and woman in his own image and likeness. There is this correspondence with him that mankind is created with a spiritual capacity and a moral capacity to connect with the spiritual God and love the loving God. So in this, God's purpose is entirely positive. And with this answer to your question, was sin a part of God's plan? I'd say no. Or wait, if you had asked, was sin part of God's purpose? I'd more comfortably say no. Sin was not in God's heart for his bride. And that touches one element of your question. When you ask that question, you use the word plan, but you kind of ask, was it God's intention? Was it what he meant? Was it purposed to happen? So that's where I would say no, sin was not part of the plan, his intention. But if you're asking, was it part of how he had to execute things to fulfill his purpose? Well, that gets a little more complicated. Let's get moving on. And here's where I want to recognize that God's amazing masterpiece of a plan called redemption was eternally conceived. Jesus is the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. But as I understand it, that eternal plan can be separated from the question of his eternal purpose and good pleasure of his heart. And if you heard me say something a little too strongly in episode one regarding redemption, here is where I'll tease out more of my thought. Okay, so back to Ephesians. His goal requires a creation who can receive spiritual blessings, and this was decided before creation was set in motion. Mankind is that object of God's desire, and thus was made in the image and likeness of God. Verse 4 says he desired us to be holy and blameless before him in love. So here is the moral requirement for this purpose. God is righteous and holy. 
So to be in communion with the triune God, his bride needs also to be compatible with that. This is to be an extension of his inner community and is defined by who God is. He is righteous and holy. Thirdly, all this takes place in love. Love on all sides. Unhindered love between all parties. Love is the atmosphere this community breathes. And love is a special thing. The parameters of a universe which could reciprocate love to the triune God required freedom, free will, and choice. Love can be given. Love can be declared. Love can be wooed. Love can be requested, even demanded. But it cannot be taken. It cannot be compelled. All sorts of submission, allegiance, obedience can be engineered, but that is not love. Love is something other. Love is yielded. That voluntary opening of one's heart to another is such a precious human experience. So if this is what God wanted in return, there had to be room for voluntary action and voluntary love, which also means room for voluntary selfishness and voluntary separation. This leaves all the room for Satan to rebel in his pride and to lead mankind astray. And we see the effects of this free will for good and for evil all around us. Well, perhaps you say to me at this point, this is just apologetics. Give me a Bible verse to prove that love requires this. And to that, I'd say, well, there is the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is a command implying our agency. But really, I'd say, if, if, if love is not this way, if it does not depend on our freedom and capacity to fall in love with God, then I just don't know how to explain why God, time and time again, extends himself so to woo his people. Like, why then, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2, does he look back to hundreds of years earlier to describe Israel's days wandering in the wilderness? as the days of the devotion of her youth, as the love of a bride. Why would he look at it that way if he wasn't so invested in their heart to have a voluntary response? And think about the whole book of Hosea, the prophet, whose life is an object lesson of the adultery of Israel and the faithfulness of God. Look at chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. There he declares that in order to bring back Israel from her idolatry, that he will allure her and speak tenderly to her until she answers, as in the days of her youth, saying, My husband. And why is he so merciful and faithful to us that he draws us again and again out of our selfishness, sin, and rebellion? If a freely chosen reciprocation was not what satisfied him to the fullest— Yes, he woos us, he draws us, he exerts himself to win our hearts. But that doesn't mean that he forces us. All the compulsion in the whole world will not force a woman to open to you unequivocally her whole heart. And anyone who has received this acquiescence of love from someone knows the sense that you've been entrusted with something more precious, rare, delicate than you even bargained for, and it deserves all your honor, fidelity, and strength 
to keep it and protect it. Similarly, one of peerless worth displays his faithfulness, power, and fidelity to us, causing us to hand over to him our heart, our hopes, and dreams, and our very selves. It is more precious because it cannot be taken, but rather yielded. Thus, if this is what God wanted us to join in on in creating us, then he clearly thought it was worth the risks involved and praised him that he took full provision in redemption to save us out of the mess this freedom would allow. So let's tie together what we've said. God had a purpose that there could be an us who can love him in a compatible way that is holy and blameless before him in love. And if this is his purpose, his desire, it clearly requires some voluntary agency on our side, allowing the possibility for things like evil and sin and selfishness to come in. So was sin part of the purpose? I would say no. Was it part of the plan? And, and again, I'd say no, but it was planned for, if you take me rightly. And praise him that when he conceived of his heart's desire, he took full account of what could happen and provided for us in the redemption found in Jesus Christ. Christ's epic and accomplished work secures the delivery of God's intended purpose and provides a way for us to return to fully participating in the reason for the universe. We become the church, the bride of Christ, and become one with our precious God. So I'd like to end with reading the Bible verses again and the three points from those verses that come together to answer your question. Remember, God desired a bride who was one, spiritual, two, holy and blameless, and lastly, could be before him in love. Here are the verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So, was sin part of God's plan? No, but it was planned for. William, I'd love your feedback. What do you think about my answer? Anybody else? I'd love to hear what you think. Did I miss something? Is there a Bible verse I'm not taking account of? Is there a gap in my logic somewhere? I'd love to hear from you and to wrestle with more of your thoughts and questions. Let's keep this conversation going and maybe God can have his way in us. If you liked what you heard, please comment, share, subscribe, and leave a review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. Next episode, we're going to explore how the pandemic has affected how generous people are with their money. The answer may not be what you'd expect. Thanks for listening. My name is James Reinars, and this is City and a Hill. I'll talk to you next time.